tired of missing, right? Stop playing your ball out of the wrong fairway and start playing the new Big Bertha B21 from Callaway. There's a ton of distance trapped inside your swing. That's why Callaway designed the new Big Bertha driver to reduce side spin, leading to more bombs straight down the middle. And they made Big Bertha irons so forgiving, you can practically hit them anywhere on the face and the ball just launches. This is distance any way you swing it. Unlock your inner distance today at callawaygolf.ca slash Big Bertha. Earlier this year, just when everyone started staying home, oil prices tanked and they tanked hard. The coronavirus was part of it, but Saudi Arabia and Russia were also flooding the market with oil in what turned out to be ruinous for many Canadian oil producers. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Justin Scheck, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, who I've known for many years, and the co-author of Blood and Oil, a new book about Saudi Arabia. It takes a closer look at the new crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as he is better known, who appears to be running things in Saudi Arabia and is trying to diversify the country's economy away from oil, making huge bets on tech companies. You may have also heard his name in 2018 after the Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered in Turkey, which many people have connected back to MBS. That same year, a diplomatic rift opened between Saudi Arabia and Canada after now Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland tweeted about the country's abhorrent human rights record. Tensions still linger and Sheck spoke about what's behind it and also how Canada's arms trade persists with Saudi Arabia despite everything. Justin Sheck, thanks for so much for joining me on Down to Business. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. You're the co-author of a new book, Blood and Oil, with another Wall Street Journal reporter, Bradley Hope. It's a book that's essentially about Saudi Arabia and its new leader, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS as people call him. But it's also a book about international business and what people think about when they envision uh, the global economy in the future. Is that fair? I think so. Mohammed bin Salman is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and you know, has, has a huge role in that country and in regional politics. But he also has more power over world oil markets than possibly anyone else. He's the world's biggest purchaser of weaponry, which really matters to Canada, which is a significant arms exporter. And he's also become the world's biggest venture capitalist, investing more money in technology companies than anyone else in the world and has almost single-handedly created a global tech bubble. So yeah, I think there are profound business implications for a whole bunch of his different policy initiatives. Yeah. And one of the most interesting aspects of this book to me was that he is the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia, which we think of as an oil economy. But as you just sort of said, he's starting to diversify the country away from oil. This is something that's really relevant to Canada because a lot of economists talk about how Canada and Alberta specifically needs to use some of the money from oil to invest in other things. But I get the sense from your book that MBS's efforts have not been as successful and it hasn't been so easy to sort of get the country off of oil. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it's it's still early, to, to be fair to him. It's still early days, but he's taken extremely ambitious steps to try to diversify the economy away from oil. And it's, you know, they're, they're still just as dependent on oil as, as they always were. Part of that has to do with just it takes time. But the other part is that the steps he's taking aren't necessarily practical, short-term, small things a country can do to move away from oil. They're 
you know, each thing is like a moonshot, like some giant effort to uh, say, you know, said, today's Saudi Arabia or tomorrow's Saudi Arabia is different from yesterday's Saudi Arabia. So one example is he put more than $40 billion into a venture capital fund run by SoftBank, which is a Japanese company, to try to invest in new technology. And the idea was that by investing all the state money in oil, the the kingdom would have different types of, of revenue coming in. And you know, the deal hasn't been a total disaster. It's structured in a way where Saudi Arabia has limited downside and and is you know still bringing in plenty of money. But rather than create you know huge ownership stakes in really profitable companies, a, a bunch of the bets haven't gone that well. You know they pumped up the value of WeWork, which is this famously disastrous Silicon Valley investment. So so far that tech effort hasn't you know, given a lot of hope to, to people that, that Saudi Arabia could quickly pivot away from its dependence on oil. Um, similarly, he's trying to bring, uh, you know, millions of new jobs to Saudi Arabia by getting foreign companies, American companies, Western companies to invest there. And there's been very little progress in that. You know, a lot of American business leaders want Saudi money to invest in their own companies, but don't want to invest their money in Saudi Arabia. Right. And even though he's still very dependent on oil revenues, he was willing to engage in this price war with Russia, which was disastrous for Canada. It resulted in a negative oil price for a little, for, for at least a moment in Canada. Does this tell us about his character, sort of the risks he's willing to take? Yeah, I think so. And, and also about his strategies as a ruler. So one central foundational tenet of the, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the US, and I think between North America, was that Saudi Arabia would, would be a stable supplier of oil. It wouldn't cut off oil supplies. It wouldn't mess with the price. It was going to you know produce oil and sell it into the world market to keep, keep things stable. And Mohammed bin Salman completely upended that. You know, for several years, Saudi Arabia and Russia had been propping up the oil price. You know, oil prices have been depressed since 2014. Saudi Arabia, which is you know the biggest OPEC producer, and Russia reached a deal where they were limiting production to try to keep uh, the amount of oil on the open markets down and prop the price up. Now, there was some frustration uh, in negotiations about continuing that deal or coming up with a new deal. I think you know everyone in these positions wants there to be less oil globally, but they don't want to be the one to cut. They want everyone else to cut and they can keep producing. And so Russia and Saudi Arabia were kind of a, at loggerheads and Mohammed bin Salman got frustrated with, with Russia's stance and decided Saudi Arabia can go longer than Russia can with a very low oil price. And so to show them that you need to, you know, come closer to my viewpoint, I'm just going to tank the price of oil. And he did it, you know, at the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic when the oil price had already fallen a lot. So it didn't take a whole lot of extra oil on the market to just to just take prices. And you know, the strategy is partially to, to go after Russia and partially to, to go after the North American oil producers. So, you know, the, the frackers in the US and, and the oil sands and, and other producers in Canada. And the idea is that if you could get a bunch of those guys to go out of business, the world oil supply um, would go down and prices would go up in Saudi Arabia and Russia, which are low cost producers, would, would benefit. But so far, yeah, you know, you've seen a profound effect on the North American producers. I mean, there's been this huge wave of bankruptcies and, and you know, bad debt and it's just a disaster for them. For Russia, Russia seems to be a little bit more resilient or at least more stubborn than Mohammed bin Salman expected. And for Saudi Arabia, you know, they're doing okay, but they're still, they're not in great financial shape. And the longer the price of oil is, is low, the the longer they have to rely on debt and, uh, you know, are getting squeezed as well. So it turned out to not be really that great for anyone. Yeah. And it's 
one of the examples, there are a lot in your book that suggest he's a bit of a wild card and um, a bit of a volatile person to have on the world stage leading a country that can play such an important role in the global economy. There's another anecdote in the book. It involves the Quebec circus, Cirque du Soleil of all things. But could you for a minute just like tell the listening audience about what happened with Cirque du Soleil and MBS? So Cirque du Soleil was, was planning a, a trip to Saudi Arabia. This is important for Mohammed bin Salman, for, or as someone who's aspiring still for, for the throne, because you know, remember his father's king. It's important for him to be able to show that he is doing visible kingly things, that he's bringing things to the kingdom that are different. And one of those efforts is bringing international entertainment to Saudi Arabia, bringing the world to Saudi Arabia, making it less of an insular place. And so he he made a deal with with the company to come and and visit and you know bring the circus to, to the kingdom. Anyway, Cirque du Soleil had to cancel. They had they, there was a conflict with their their you know world tour they were doing, and they said we know we need to postpone at some point. We can't come to Saudi Arabia for for, for this this visit we're expecting to do. So a Saudi official calls a Canadian government official and says, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, he's pissed off. He loves Cirque du Soleil and this is unacceptable. You have to make them come. And the Canadian official, you know, explained the government can't just call up a private company and say you need to go perform a circus show in Saudi Arabia. I mean, this, this is this, we, we can't we can't do that. The, the takeaway from it really is that I think below Mohammed bin Salman, you have these people who work for him, who are very loyal to him and very afraid of displeasing him. And what they interpret as his desires or his his whims can end up becoming, you know, policy issues between Saudi Arabia and, and its trading partners. So this created friction in a relationship that's already headed to, to, you know, some rough waters. Wow. When I read that, what was most fascinating to me was you had people trying to get the prime minister or someone in Canada's government to order Cirque Soleil to go to Saudi Arabia, obviously not the way Canada or democracies work. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that, you know, we learn over and over again, writing about Saudi relations with other countries is that we all think other places work like our place works. So, you know, when, when you ask, you know, how do, how do young Saudis feel about the ruler? It's not like asking how do, you, how do young, you know, Canadians feel about Trudeau? You know, people have a different way of looking at things when they're in a monarchy and when they, they don't have a choice for their leader is. And, and the same thing from the top down in government. In Saudi Arabia, the monarch says a Saudi company needs to put on a circus somewhere. You do it because the monarch's in charge. And it's hard to really understand how things can be so different in in your counterpart. And that goes both ways. Yeah. So you called the book Blood and Oil, and there's a lot of evidence in there about Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, going after his rivals, his critics in very barbaric tactics and brutal tactics. But in 2018, our current deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, goes on Twitter and says, Saudi Arabia's human rights record is awful. And MBS goes ballistic. He kicks out the Canadian ambassador, pulls Saudi students from Canadian universities. It's not the first time the country has been criticized for its human rights record. Any sense that you can give us about why this particular time set him off? So something that's, that's really important to understand about him is that he's not king. He's the crown prince. And his path to the throne has been much rougher than any Saudis in recent history. 
And which is to say that um, he, he grew up not expecting to ever have a chance of being king. So much of, of what he's had to do in his adult life, and he's only 35, his short adult life, has been to edge out rivals. That's including, you know, taking away their money, uh, locking some in jail. And a piece of that, of paving his way to the throne, is making sure that in the eyes of the royal family, which will determine succession to the next generation, and in the eyes of the Saudi people, which will determine his, his family's legitimacy, he needs to be seen as someone who's an important leader and a strong leader. So to that end, when the a government official in a country that's supposedly an ally comes out on Twitter, which is the platform that he's relied on to spread his message, and, and criticizes Saudi Arabia, he wants to be seen as the kind of person who will, who will not accept that. He doesn't want Saudi Arabia to be seen as under the thumb of America and Canada and the Western countries and as, a, as someone who just falls in line with them. He wants Saudi Arabia to be a strong, independent country. He wants that image and he wants to be the person to lead it. And so this was a situation where you have someone, you know, it, it's been a sore point for a while. You know, he used to be upset when Hillary Clinton under the Obama administration would criticize the Saudi human rights record. Probably not a coincidence that, you know, women uh, elicit this kind of response. But um, when, so when you have an ally coming out and saying that, it's an opportunity for him to show strength and an opportunity with like not a huge downside because the way the Canadian relationship works is um, Saudi Arabia buys a lot of, of weaponry from Canada. He didn't have a huge amount to lose by alienating Canada. And so it, it, in a way for him, you could see it as an opportunity to show that he's strong and is going to take a strong stance on something. But it struck me more as an image-building exercise rather than something with deeper substantive politics, with, with, with the one exception that you know, there is this ongoing issue between Saudi Arabia and Canada of a senior Saudi intelligence official who's seeking refuge in Canada and Saudi wants him back. So there is some underlying tension there. Right. We, we have given refuge, I guess, to a couple of, I don't know if I'd even call them dissidents, but maybe you can explain more about what's happening with that. Yeah, so it had been simmering for a couple of years before the Freeland episode. So you know, there's some steady dissidents who've been living in Canada. But, you know, the dissidents are, are, I think, a separate and probably smaller issue than the real sore point here is a guy named Saad al-Jabri. He was the highest ranking non, non-royal in the Ministry of Interior in Saudi Arabia, which is um, sort of a pseudo-military arm that is in charge of anti-terrorism efforts in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis, through this guy, Saad al-Jabri, had a very close relationship with Western intelligence agencies, Canada, the US, European uh, intelligence. They coordinated in a deep and meaningful way on anti-terrorism efforts. And so this guy, Jabri, became very well-known and very highly respected by his counterparts in the West. Now, unfortunately for Saad al-Jabri, he was working for a prince named Mohammed bin Nayef, first cousin of MBS, who had initially been in line for the throne ahead of Mohammed bin Salman. Um, when Salman, MBS's father, became king, the, the crown prince was Mohammed bin Nayef, the cousin. And next, the deputy crown prince was Mohammed bin Salman. So in 2015... Jabri goes to meet the CIA director. Mohammed bin Salman claimed at the time that, that he, he had gone to meet the CIA director without telling the royal court. And Jabri was fired. Like he found out, you know, through public media that he'd been fired from his job. So he leaves Saudi Arabia, traveled around a little bit. Uh, immediately, MBS started taking steps, you know, through Interpol and other, other ways to try to get him back to Saudi Arabia. He ends up uh, moving to Canada and living there in exile. He's been there for several years. And you know, he, he has family in the U.S., in Canada, but he has two children. His, uh, they're adults, uh, young adults, um, who are still in Saudi Arabia. And they, they get put under a travel ban. 
And this guy, Jabri, who was, you know, the closest connection to Western intelligence is, is in, sort of in the wilderness. He's in Canada and desperate as any parent would be to get his children back. And this sort of simmered for a while where I think Mohammed bin Salman resented that Canada was keeping this guy who he wanted back. And the Canadian and, and American, you know, intelligence establishment was like, look, this guy is like, you know, has done great things for Saudi Arabia and for the West in terms of preventing terrorism. Like, can't you just put this aside and or at the very least let his kids out? And it became this sort of standoff. Uh, and then over the last several months, it, it's come to a head where the children who were under the travel ban were, were you know, accused of crimes and arrested. The Saudi royal court now says uh, that Saad al-Jabri was in fact corrupt and had been skimming billions of dollars from an anti-terrorism fund when, when he was, you know, in government. So there's this sort of, you know, standoff uh, on that issue. But then, you know, he he took the, the shocking tactic uh, not long ago of suing Saudi Arabia, suing the government in U.S. court, claiming that they had tried to abduct him in, in, in a brutal way. And so, you know, it's become like this sort of public dispute in, in a way that we haven't seen before. And so the fact that Canada has been harboring this guy who is an active critic of Mohammed bin Salman, you know, sort of an ongoing sore point. And it's, it's hard to see how that one resolves itself easily. Yeah. And a question about this. Canada has al-Jabri. Um, there's actually, I think, some other Saudis, and we don't have to go into who they are, but why are these guys not taking refuge in the U.S.? Why would they be in Canada? Is it merely just the coincidence that their children were located here? It's not a coincidence. What the Jawi camp says is that, you know, under the Donald Trump administration, he had some reservations about being in the U.S. The, the, the Trump White House and, and Mohammed bin Salman's royal court are, are, have a very close relationship. And he was concerned that the U.S. may not be as safe as Canada. And I, I you know, I don't know for some of the dissidents whether, yeah, you know, I think some of the dissidents ended up in Canada because that's where they ended up. But there, there has been a concern in this community of, uh, of Saudis who've run afoul of, M of MBS that um, that the U.S. is maybe not the the safest place to be. Right. So to put this into perspective for a second, and maybe this can be our last question, but the irony of this diplomatic rift of the fact that even as Freeland was criticizing the human rights record in Saudi Arabia, Canada's arms sales to Saudi Arabia continue. Um, I think they've even grown in the past few years, and it's several billion dollars worth now, including light armored vehicles. This seemed to suggest to me that all these geopolitics, at the end of the day, business always trumps personal offense or rift. And I'm not sure that always was the case, but it seems like that's one of the takeaways from your book is that even Mohammed bin Salman, who seems to have little restraint or a little, you know, few sort of institutional restraints in terms of how he rules and how he acts and how he makes policy. It's all sort of based on his personal whims or desires or plans. But even he is willing to do business with Canadian companies, if it makes sense. Yeah, I think, you know, one, one of the sort of guiding principles for Bradley and me in working the book was, you know, we're, we're reporters of the Wall Street Journal. We, we follow money, consider money as, as, you know, to be the way that, that geopolitical power is expressed and, and transmitted. And so our it kind of the, the way we do things is, is look at, at everything through a lens of business. And so, yeah, Saudi Arabia is a really, a really good place to do that because it, it's a place that is, is its power internationally is due to its, you know, the huge amount of oil that it can sell for money and then the, the huge amount of money it has to, 
to throw around, you know, buying things from from countries like Canada and the US and and investing in places like Silicon Valley. So so yeah, you know, it's such an old and cliched lesson to learn, but we learn it over and over that that really what, you know, the driving force behind any of these relationships is often not principal and often it's not longstanding cultural uh, animosity or, or cultural uh, affinity for one another, like you see in the region, but it's, it's transactional. And I think things have become more transactional in the approach that the Trump administration has taken and in certain ways approach that Mohammed bin Salman has taken. But the bottom line is the bottom line. Like, like if, if the relationship between Canada and Saudi Arabia is based largely on Canada selling billions of dollars a year worth of military supplies to Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia, you know, needs military supplies. They've got an ongoing, you know, disastrous uh, war in Yemen and they need they need the stuff to carry out that war. And so it's easy to put a lot of disputes in the past or at least to, to lessen the importance of the friction when, you know, the Saudis need to make a big purchase of, say, armored vehicles, and, and Canada wants to continue selling that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a foundational piece of the relationship. That was Justin Sheck, co-author of Blood and Oil, a new book about Saudi Arabia and its crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Thank you for listening, and thank you to the team behind Down to Business. Bryce Hall provided the music and production, Yadullah Hussein the editing, and Pamela Heaven the web support. Please consider sharing this episode and rating Down to Business on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.